Network's show about media, politics, and the politics in the media. I am Tom Mills, and I am joined today by Dan Hind, as I usually am. Hello, Dan. Hello. And we also have the pleasure of being joined by Cam Sandu. Cam, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, um, it's great to be here. I am editor and founder of realmedia.press, so it's a journalist cooperative for um, journalists to create public interest journalism and generally fight some of the distortions that we have in the media that we've experienced a lot of this week. Thanks very much. It's great to have you on Media Democracy. Uh, what are we going to be talking about this week? Well, what else but um, Corbyn and his connections to the Eastern Bloc, of course, uh, which has been a big story, um, which has shaken the British media, of course. And Dan, has it, has, has it shaken you? Uh, it's, some pretty, it, pretty colourful revelations. It's left me, I have to admit, it's left me somewhat underwhelmed. Um, it all started, didn't it, it with um, an article in our old favourite, The Sun. Tom and I spent a very happy week last summer reading The Sun cover to cover every day um, to, to kind of limited illumination, I think it's fair to say. Um, they have popped up again um, with a single source story um, purporting to... Uh, to establish a link between Jeremy Corbyn and a undercover spy at the Czech Embassy in the mid '80s, um, and like from the outset, this is this is a very thin story, in that it's very hard to see why we are taking um, the word of an, of a single individual as seriously as as we appear to be being asked to um but it's gone on and it's been reproduced tom i think you were saying in the telegraph um and uh, else elsewhere in the mainstream media yeah, I it's, think... picked up, it's picked up by the daily mail almost straight away i think and and they run with it in a big way and the telegraph as well so the sort of and the express so the sort of you know the core of the uh of the Tory press um, and the Sun, of course, uh, leading the charge. Um, Dan, I, I know we've got a lot of young listeners, so do you want to sort of explain to them what the significance of Czechos- Well, essentially, the um, Czechoslovakia, which is which no longer exists, of course, Czech, 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 um, Czech Republic and Slovakia are now separate countries. During Cold War, Czechoslovakia was part of. Um, the Warsaw Pact military and um, intelligence alliance um, organised uh, and dominated by Moscow, dominated by the Russians. Um, and so Czechoslovakia would have been at the time seen as and understood in terms of uh, as, a, as, a, as it were a Cold War enemy. Um, and this was a time when there were still quite recent memories about Soviet infiltration of um, the British security services. Um, there was quite a lot of paranoia about the idea that Moscow was sponsoring uh, left elements in in civil society in general, and the Labour Party in particular. Um, and, I mean, I think it's clear, looking at Corbyn's record, that he took a lively interest in foreign policy, and as such he was meeting um, many people um, that have become that have actually, as it were become sticks with which to beat him. You will remember you remember during the election last 
year, uh, there was a lot of talk about his um, his apparently friendly uh, dealings with Hamas and with Sinn Fein, um, both of whom, in their in their in sort of different ways and in different respects, are sort of on the official enemies list, if you like. And I think we should talk a bit about you know official enemies and um, the broader context in which foreign policy is is made in in Britain and and how this um, this as I say, kind of underwhelming story fits into a wider narrative about who should and shouldn't be permitted to engage in conversations with people from elsewhere. Yeah, um, but before we get before we get onto that, should we just deal quickly with the substance of the claims being made and <laughs> and how substantial they are? Um, Cam, should I? Do you want to um, comment on what what generally you make of this story and uh, whether we find it convincing? I mean, people can probably guess from our tone so far. <laughs> We're not sort of pulled away by it. Um, well, yeah. It's sort of. I think we need to sort of say how how stupid this is for, from a journalistic perspective before we sort of launch into the politics of this and the politics of the press. Yeah. Well, Dan just said there that this was a very thin story, except that. I don't think it is because there are all these other details that show what the story is for what it is. So this guy, this Sarkozy guy, this spy that they found, um, says that he knew, he was told from Corbyn that what Margaret Thatcher would have eaten for lunch and breakfast and dinner, what she was going to wear the next day, which is absurd in itself. Um, they, you know, that he would know what Margaret Thatcher would be wearing the next day. Well, known um, personal ally of Thatcher, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, of course, of course. They always just check in with each other before they go to bed um, about what their gear is going to be the next day so they don't clash. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, he's also got all these other kind of conspiracies about live aids. So the story's kind of there for itself. So you can see here how the media's just taken what it wants and then how impressive and depressing it was that so many other outlets then go, actually, yeah, that's fine, we'll go with that, um, and we'll push this uh, thin idea. And we already had kind of a uh, response from the Czech embassy saying, you know, this is on very kind of thin ground. Obviously, Corbyn uh, denied it, but it was also then picked up by politicians. So now you have this uh, these, these press organisations, many of whom are billionaire uh, tax avoiders, and uh, politicians then quickly join it. And it's very like, you know, racism um, and, with, and kind of immigration where they go, there's legitimate questions to ask about Corbyn. Um, and when I was listening yeah, to it's the... Like, it's almost like the, the, the issue becomes the refusal to engage in the ridiculous story. So they sort exactly. of make something up and then they say, why are you refusing to take this fabrication seriously? And then that becomes the story. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And uh, when I, I listened to, it's not just the kind of tabloids and the people that we would expect, because it was kind of, I mean, there's a time story today that we can talk about that took it to the next level. But uh, on The Spectator, I was listening to their short podcast about it this morning, and they were saying, oh, you know, it's all been overblown, but there are serious questions that need to be asked here about Corbyn being anti-Western. And so they bring it down to this very cultural, ambiguous, you know, idea, because we know that it's very thin. <laughs> so then it just becomes about you need to answer this, as you said, this ridiculous story. Yeah. So I, the, 
they they themselves seem to be rowing back from it, don't they? In the last couple of days, I mean, we're we're now a sort of week into this, uh, as you say, thin story. But actually, probably not even thin story doesn't do it justice because really, as you say, the facts were there even from the very beginning to show that um, this was was a non-story because the the source just simply wasn't viable. And then as the story is sort of refused to go away. The evidence has emerged that you know could clearly discredit um, the claims being made, and the source had already discredited himself with other statement statements mm-hmm. that he made. Um, so yeah, as you say, that the, the, they started rowing back from it a bit, and then there's this sort of strange insinuation that seems to emerge where, oh well, m- well maybe he wasn't working for um, you know the Czech secret police, but but you know are there questions to ask about his loyalty to Britain kind of thing, you know, and, and then yeah. somehow we seem to be having a different conversation off the back of, um, off the back of the reporting itself, which just seems, it seems sort of bizarre, really. Um, the, Dan, um, th- this, I think, brings us on to something you were saying uh, about the sort of broader role that, um, that, that these questions play about uh, loyalty and nationalism, because it seems to me underlying this, this you know, kind of comically absurd story is this kind of uh, broader theme um, which the, the press has taken up against Jeremy Corbyn. And actually, I think it's worth probably saying that there were similar sort of insinuations made by the Conservative press against um, Ed Miliband as well. In Absolutely. Terms of- to Britain um, and his relationship to his uh, Marxist father, which, you know, in which there, there was a sort of um, undertones of anti-Semitism as well. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's not just Corbyn, uh, of course, this has um, played out in figures to the left, um, you know, uh, for, for a long time, as, as in fact um, have had these sort of claims about um, relationships to, you know, the, the official enemy, and uh, so cold during the Cold War. I mean, these are these are quite common allegations to be levied against the left, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think your your point about Miliband is is really striking, isn't it? Because Miliband is in 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 every respect a, a, an extremely conventional figure um, in terms of his foreign policy disposition. There's no there's nothing of the kind of um, uh, solidarity with third world liberation movements that you find um, with Corbyn and his circle. Uh, I think I think Miliband was a um, it took a, a Kennedy scholarship in the United, to the United States and is very sort of firmly integrated in a, a sort of Atlanticist or a, uh, an Anglo American conception of the world, which. Which would dovetail very neatly, I think, with um, the Democrats in the United States, and yet because of his because of the, his politics, he was, as you say, he was singled out and attacked in a in, in a way that's very reminiscent of the way that Corbyn's being attacked, and I think this tells us something about you know what's really going on is that a, a particular kind of body of sentiment around that's been very carefully cultivated around you know what constitutes a reliable politician, what constitutes someone who can, we can trust the nuclear codes to and so on, um, is being mobilised against people uh, who threaten the material interests of the people who obviously uh, are in government at the moment and, and the people who, who own much of the press. 
Um, that that kind of point is um, is not being made. Yet you're right, Tom, for for bringing it up. I saw Jim Watson, <clears throat> who's who was political editor of BuzzFeed, is going over to the Guardian now to talk about the politics of the media, um, and he said after Corbyn's video response that this was uh, a threat to the Mail, the the Sun, and a couple of other newspapers. Uh, that Ed Miliband had only threatened the Daily Mail after they'd written something about his father, suggesting that like there was no similarity between these two cases, which is that they stir up this kind of idea of you can't trust this person and this person doesn't like Britain or hasn't got these you know British values that they've been drumming into people. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just yeah, didn't I was thought that was quite bizarre, and I was like, you're not just you're accusing this guy, and we have to remember the environment that we're in right now. You know, after Joe Cox, after Darren Osborne was mm. uh, was making threats on Corbyn's life, to have this kind of scare story based on so little evidence is so dangerous. And you know, there's there's in all the kind of things that I've read about it, none of that has been uh, tackled. That's really interesting that you mentioned you mentioned the, the this I this the the Watson response was just to say, oh, he only he only went after them when they when they sort of attacked his dad. Which which speaks, I think, to this this kind of relentless personalization, um, and as it were, trivialization of politics by by a lot of the, the sort of the, the the Westminster media corpus. You know, these people they 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 insist that it's all about family relationships, about friendships, and they refuse to acknowledge that there might be some political substance as to why both Miliband and Corbyn. Uh, are attacked on almost exactly the same ground, even though they're radically different um, politicians in many... In, and it's in, not even in true anyway, space. is it? Because, like, you know, Miliband, for, for all his sort of hesitancy when it came to trying to move the party left, you know, did actually um, come out much more strongly against um, News International um, than, mm-hmm. than any of his predecessors. And, you know, and, and Jeremy Corbyn, you know, has had a very long-standing um, commitment to a, a more diverse media... And the, the most bizarre example of this um, I saw was uh, Dan Hodges. And, you know, he's a very silly person, so I don't want to sort of trivialise the podcast by bringing his name in. But it was just a sort of weird example of how the sort of convoluted arguments that these kinds of people made, where he said, oh, um, the, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is now um, making these announcements shows that his commitments that he's made in the past to media polarity was basically... Um, just to cover, you know, all, all, the, all of that was sort of leading to this moment. So it, 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 it was like it was like it was it's like it was saying, oh, um, he, he, Labour have made statements about you know how the, we we have a millionaire press and the rest of it, but now we see the reason why because it was actually all about this one moment, you know, where the press had gone for Corbyn. I mean, it was stupid on so many levels. Like one, because it doesn't make like most of Dan Rogers' tweets, it doesn't make any sense and makes them look like an arse. But also, you know. I mean, first of all, the press have been attacking Corbyn and people from Corbyn's political tradition for decades. You know, so the sort of idea that suddenly, you know, the, the, the press have gone after Corbyn on this occasion and it's suddenly, you know, at this time it's personal kind of thing. It's just kind of ridiculous, really, because this is this is actually the latest example of a series of attacks that have been made on um, Corbyn and the Labour left, um, you know, which reached a sort of um, crescendo last year but which has kind of, I guess, had quieted down to some extent, hadn't they? But, um, 
but are part of a tradition of very vicious right-wing attacks on the Labour Party and not even just the left of the Labour Party. You know, I mean, they went after Kinnock, for God's sake, saying he was a communist or something. Yeah, um, I think whether, you know, regardless of the, the extent to which there's any evidence of interest in or sympathy for actually existing communist regimes, it's part of the shadow play of, of the existing media system, isn't it? That you can you can simply invoke the idea of um, softness on our, on our enemies, or a you know a, a weakness as regards external threats. You can simply um, assert that onto the left uh, as part of a of a broader kind of media imaginary, which leaves crucially, for example, it leaves the American alliance completely unexamined. Um, so the idea that British politicians might be surrendering vital British national interests to uh, to the Americans is 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 kind of incomprehensible in our media system. Um, there's no such thing as being too you know being soft on America, um, and yet you know in the last couple of years we've seen the arrival of Trump and the shenanigans of the sort of hard Brexit brigade starting to, I think, to, to break through that, um, that paralysis of thought that surrounds our relationship with the United States. Um, we've never had a, poli- a you know, president as kind of absurd. Even, even Bush wasn't, wasn't so, so absurdly unsuited for office as Trump is. Um, oh, yeah, good old George, good old George Bush. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's he's been sort of dis- disgracefully being being re- rehabilitated to some extent in the aftermath of Trump. Um, but I think, even, you know, in the, from the moment that Trump arrived on the stage, the idea that this was somehow a, a presidential figure was was impossible to sustain, uh, even in the British media. Um, and and as that as that fell apart, I think it became much more difficult, as it were, to naturalise our so-called special relationship with the United States. And, and this touches on a, a news story, Cam, which, which you wanted to flag up this week, which hasn't received um, anything like the attention that, that it should have. Um, and, it, and it pertains to the ways in which almost, something almost like a freelance or unofficial foreign policy is being conducted um, by the advocates of a hard Brexit. Do you want to give our listeners a little bit of, of background on this story? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I was actually, I've released a story at the same time, so I was kind of looking at this, at the same kinds of um, people and organisations that were involved in in this story. But over the weekend, uh, Unearthed, which is kind of Greenpeace's investigative news uh, department, they they released a story because Daniel Hannan, who's one of the leading kind of Brexiteers, you know, he was spokesman for the Vote Leave campaign, responsible for that £350 million for the NHS bus. Um, he, his think tank, which was set up in September, called the Initiative Free for Free Trade, is kind of part of this network of other kind of hard right think tanks that are in both the US and the UK, and in the UK it's the IEA, the Institute for Economic Affairs, you've probably seen them on BBC Question Time or This Week or some kind of mainstream show recently, Um, and the Adam Smith Institute, and in the US it's the Cato Institute um, and the Heritage Foundation. Now, 
these guys have a really long history, you know, barring kind of um, Hanan, who's just set up his think tank recently, but very much in this kind of tradition of what they describe as this freedom movement. And freedom for them means total market liberalisation, you know, handing over uh, regulations and rules to, to corporations to be able to do essentially what they like. Um, and those dangers are really, really much bigger, obviously, during Brexit when we're rewriting all of our rules. What you said about kind of not examining um, the, the differences between the US and the UK is now, you know, it's going to become so, so important now because, you know, uh, the story revealed that they were making up shadow trade talks whereby they would deregulate our food and deregulate our drugs industry, which would allow, you know, we've heard the scare stories kind of about chlorinated chicken and hormone fed beef, but really Really, it doesn't even start to encapsulate the kinds of levels of corporate power um, that goes on in the US and the strength of their food lobbies and the you know the extent to which consumers do not know what they are buying. Daniel Hannan, um, in the story that I did, he's he'd gone to this um, yearly freedom dinner. It's really cultish. Uh, hosted by the Atlas Network, which brings together 475 now, I think, free market think tanks across the globe. And um, and he said then, you know, he was talking, he was dedicated his toast to freedom to chicken and saying that chicken should be the symbol of the global freedom movement because it was because the IEA and the Atlas Network was started by this um, chicken farmer who essentially made his money out of intensive, uh, you know, cheap chicken. So now chlorinated chicken, chicken is once again at the centre of this kind of meaning of more freedom for these guys who want to do away with it's it, you know um it's their, their whole kind of i find him a bit bizarre myself kind of daniel hannan and uh it's it's kind of very cultish the way he talks about it he may, you know he's been a real frontline speaker about kind of freedom and brexit and you know turning our eyes to more opulent markets he calls it but essentially he, he's all for deregulation and this would be and you know the, the effects of that which is what I wrote about in this piece, is that we, we've seen hard Brexiteers like Jacob Rees-Mogg um, and others saying food will be cheaper, items will be cheaper after Brexit. But what that means is we're going to be flooded with really, really cheap products that drive out small farm producers, small, and because they won't be able to compete with this, you know, really hardcore deregulated industry that is obsessed with cheap uh, cheap products, and that means lower quality. It means us knowing less about what we're what we're eating. Those kinds of things just haven't been examined, you know, at all. Now, what's interesting, I mean, hear, hearing you talk, what's interesting is that, as you describe him, and it, and it chimes certainly with my understanding of both Hannan and the the far right, far conservative right media in which he operates. Is, what What's interesting about them for our for you know for our purposes is that they're interesting in effecting a transformation of Britain, um, but and they're seeking to use Britain's foreign policy, Britain's trade policy in particular, as a device by which to achieve that transformation. Mm. That they are going to the United States and they are seeking to uh, develop a trade relationship um, with the United States that will, as it were, enforce their vision of liberty on Great Britain. It will be, you know, Britain will be forced to be free um, because of um, the necessity, as they, as they present it, of forging a, a new trade relationship with the United States. Now, yeah. this sits very comfortably in a, in a long-standing 
right right wing Atlanticist vision of Britain's place in the world. But what's what's fascinating to me is that this is not understood as being in any way an exercise of seeking to tr- seeking a transformation of Britain through the exercise of a foreign policy in the way that Corbyn having tea with a Czech diplomat is immediately understood as being evidence, prima facie evidence of subversion and an attempt to enforce proletarian liberty on Britain by the use of the Red Army. I mean, that's the, that's the subtext of the Cold War paranoia, was that left-wing Labour politicians would use um, the, the muscle of the Soviet Union, they would use the support that the Soviet Union could, could give us in the international arena to, to provide cover for an, a national transformation. And yet... This is exactly, it seems to me, what the right of the Conservative Party are engaged in at the moment. Yeah. The difference being I mean, that they're not doing it with an official enemy. They're doing it with, a, with our you know, supposedly long-standing ally. Yeah. And the fact that it's just, you know, completely goes and says that we're meant to accept that we're going to be totally fine because we'll be able to strike a trade deal with the US who we're meant to, you know feel like is our closest ally and perhaps a society that we're we're really close to and at the same time yeah we're seeing you know trump being elected and kind of the 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 kind of policies that he's bringing in and you know could this be actually the worst time that we could be getting into this kind of relationship um this reliance on them and this and you know this the suggestion that because we have such a special relationship that that, that we're going to be almost equals like this is a joke like <laughs> but um this kind of fantasy, this very this loving of America is very deeply embedded also in these kinds of figures. I mean, um, Liam Fox, his previous, he had a think tank, well, he, well, it was called a charity, and it was shut down after an investigation by the Charity Commission called Atlantic Bridge. Mm-hmm. And it's like mission statement was, you know, to pull us to the to defend ourselves from people who want to pull us out, pull us away from our American allies these European integrationists who are trying to pull us away from what they're trying to suggest some kind of natural partner that we would have. Um, so it's really, really deeply embedded in these people. And, you know, William Hague, uh, Thatcher, all kind of had this um, unexamined idea of America. You know, I think lots of people would have a problem if they had to articulate what's, what they thought, would have lots of problems with well, I think America would, right now. They'd have a huge difficulty selling their, their vision of America to people in the United Kingdom um, because of their vision of America is, is, is one of almost a sort of uh, a dictatorship of private property. Um, the, the right in the UK have looked to America and seen that private property has prerogatives and powers in the United States and, and there's a degree of material inequality in the United States which um, historically, after the Second World War, wasn't politically possible in the United Kingdom, and and I, the other the other aspect of this, which is not, it's not it's not vastly important, but I think it's worth noting that I think the Americans are interested in affecting this transformation of Great Britain. I think they are interested in, uh, for example, privatizing the uh, the NHS because if they can if they can dismantle the National Health Service in the UK, they will render invisible or they will render irrelevant for domestic politics um, the one great example um, of a, a socialised um, system of medicine 
that, that the American left is well aware of. The American left looks at the NHS and thinks, well, if they can have that in the UK, why can't we have that here? Um, and I think there is a yeah. sense in which the American right would like to see us substantially Americanized in order to turn around to the American left and say there is no such thing as a, as a sort of social democratic um, Britain. We have wiped it out. Um, so I think there's a community of interest there that isn't simply, um, it's not simply ideological and it's not simply down to the fact that obviously there's this very tight relationship in the financial sector. Um, I think there is there are sort of tactical benefits to, to accrue from um, from a hard Brexit of the kind that that Hannah and others are seeking. Yeah, I mean, just, sorry, go on, Cam. Oh, just to just to pick up kind of how pernicious this network is. You know, the IEA, who you know don't reveal who they're, where their funding comes from, um, were on uh, BBC this week recently. Uh, Kate Andrews, I think her name was, and she was saying, oh, you know, the NHS is um, is just not working. There's all these people who are, it's just not, you know, it's just not working anymore. We need to change it. The after Trump had put that tweet out saying, you know, people were protesting about the NHS when they were protesting to save it. Um, and they're given this platform. There's no uh, declaration of who their financial interests are. It's highly likely that they are, get, are getting some interest from people who would benefit financially from the NHS being privatised. Um, if, and that, you know, I'm taking that from given the fact that uh, the Atlas Network are funded by people like Exxon, funded by people like the Koch Foundation, um, funded by, uh, you know, massive corporations. Uh, and, you know, they put all their money into making this idea that it's total common sense and it's definitely just coming from people that we just want freedom and liberty, except that freedom and liberty is not what is not protections for us. It's it's you know freedom for them to 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 do what they like so that they're just you know they're they're kind of everywhere and it's quite frustrating that they're just kind of popping up all the time there's no examination into um who these guys are on our bbc and, and the fact that as you say there's such there's such, such lack of transparency about their funding um and more to the point there's such a um there's such an incuriosity about these these far right networks in the United States that are have huge amounts of funding, um, and the you know the 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 hysterical conniptions uh, that people get into uh, when they start talking about Russian influence or they talk about press TV, which um, has links to the Iranian regime, um, is never matched by any like even sort of normal animal curiosity about where all these where all these free market ideas come from. Um, and they come overwhelmingly from, as you say, from oil money in the US. Yeah, there's oil money in the US and then, you know, various conservative um, foundations and, you know, money from big corporations. You know, so we, we know, for example, that the Institute for of Economic Affairs has received money from um, Big Tobacco, which is, you know, funds. So that's, in a way, the, the, the political or parapolitical kind of operations of big tobacco are some of the most transparent areas in the corporate sector simply because we have so much documentation from their political strategies. Um, but we know, in fact, a, a fair amount about how these kind of political operations work in terms of corporate power and funding um, third-party um, lobby groups and, and, of course, think tanks. And on top of that, you know, we, we, we at least know enough about the history of neoliberalism to see the ways in which 
these networks of politicians and intellectuals and their corporate donors have, as you say, been able to mobilize these kinds of ideas. And the, the reason why, you know, that's not treated as being alien to Britain, I suppose, is that, you know, large sections of the elite in this country subscribe to those ideas and are part of those same political networks. Um, Dan, when you were saying about, you know, the, the interest behind the NHS, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's very clear that um, the think tanks which have sort of led the... Um, the, the greater involvement in private set, private providers, let's say, in public services, you know, like policy exchange, are funded by those same corporations, um, like private healthcare and outsourcing companies that are benefiting from those ideas. So, you know, these are these ideas do have a very material base. And the NHS, by the way, is a little snippet of history. The internal market in the NHS was originally developed by a guy called Elaine Enhoven who had worked at the Rand Corporation, which was really um, seminal for a lot of these ideas about um, public service reform, the emanation of public choice from Virginia to the UK, and the Institute of Economic Affairs, you know, had a very central role in popularizing those ideas on the right of the Conservative Party. So I think Thatcher and Liam Fox and the rest of them, the sort of figures who have now aligned with um, the Brexiteers, you know, these people are sort of on the the right um, libertarian part of the Conservative sure. Party, and these kinds of ideas, I mean, they also don't have much traction with the British public in, in the same way as I think, you know, libertarianism in the United States seems to me to have a bit more of a kind of um, grasp on, mm. uh, if not the public at large, but significant enough sections of right, popular right-wing opinion. That doesn't seem to me to be quite the same. I mean, you definitely get the sort of um, political anoraks who read, you know, um, Hayek and, uh, you know, join the conservative um, students yeah. and the rest of it. But I, I just, I don't think it's in those sets of ideas really quite had the same sort of hold in this country. So we are talking about a certain elite common sense that gets sort of spread around and, and just, yeah, isn't ever discussed really as well, being this, problematic. I mean, this is an interesting question, isn't it? The extent to which the, the, the Brexit leaning right are in fact, an outlier in the UK elite. I mean, if you compare them with um, the, you know, the broad generality of opinion in corporate Britain that was in favour of continuing membership of the EU, granted there were anxieties about joining the euro, granted there were anxieties about um, regulation of the financial sector from Brussels and so on, but, but those caveats aside, I think the, the generality of the centre-left, centre-right, sort of centrist um, common sense was was in favour of remaining in the EU for for reasons that were creditable and discreditable. Um, but, it, I mean, is it possible to characterise the hard Brexit brigade, in fact, as a... Um, as essentially a foreign-sponsored fifth column um, seeking to undermine the interests of the British people. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends, doesn't it, you know, how we want to find the national interest. But I, I think if we were going to define it as the weight of opinion in the FTSE 500 companies, then you're, you could probably make a good argument. My own sort of impression from researching this sort of thing is that, um, and I've been to know what Cam thinks of this, is that the... 
um, the conservative wing of the elite, these sort of libertarian Brexiteers, a lot of their money seems to be coming from, you know, private companies rather than PLCs, um, conservative foundations, which are much more committed to, um, yeah, this kind of libertarian vision. So, I mean, I, I, I think that these these people are basically the right the right wing of the establishment and that probably the the core of the British elite, yeah, is, is a bit more around that sort of Financial Times, sort of CBI, um, FTSE 500 kind of uh, liberal internationalism. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And you can see that this is definitely a fight between the elites because this is why there is a Tory civil war happening right now. Because you and I think uh, the reason why some of the the arguments for Remain, you know, didn't work, and I felt really frustrated at the time, was because you were, you were seeing, and I was like, I, you know, there are definitely good reasons for people to vote leave, and then you have all these corporations uh, and these big businesses being like, don't do it for your own interest, and it's like, look, the time is gone for big business to or people like George Osborne right. to to be the ones to say, oh, protect this system, so. Um, but I think the other side of it, I read this really excellent book called uh, Capital Without Borders by Brooke Harrington. If you haven't read it, read it. It's amazing. An incredible feat of uh, journalism because Brooke, she trained as a wealth manager to go into this secretive world uh, and uh, talk to wealth managers and discuss what kind of lives they live and this rationalization of, of wealth. Mm-hmm. And someone who'd read that book said that having read it, they felt like the 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 break between the elites was between this kind of globalist new world corporate money, uh, you know, thing and kind of old money, family money, uh, no rules, uh, people who don't want anything, you know, don't want you to come near their assets and their money and all that kind of thing. And you know, almost anarchist, you know, uh, Brooke describes it because they just view all rules and regulations as an attack yeah. on them. Yeah. Um, so I think those, along with some people who are very, very libertarian ideas, are kind of coming together and, you know, getting money from trust. I mean, it, it, it's really interesting because it makes you realise one point that she stresses is that for all the kind of inequality that we have at the moment, the real wealth is not in earned income. It's not someone who's uh, making, you know, a million pounds a year. It's in the stashed income. It's in the way that we're, there's still, like, more ways of creating new structures to hide people's money, like all this secrecy in this area of huge amounts of wealth. You know, the, the company in the world that's the most valuable company is Apple, and that's because it has massive ability to um, hide its money. It's not because it sells so much more than any other company. It's because it's stored this wealth through kind of tax avoidance. So when we're coming back to kind of these organisations like the billionaire media barons and, you know, some of them who have been very Brexit, I think that's some of their motivations. Um, and it speaks to like a big silence that we don't talk about, like the power that uh, tax avoiders and the very, very wealthy are having on society. Because like the IEA, one of their, you know, their two shticks are deregulate that. And the second one is the rich have nothing to do with inequality. Just, you know, stop looking around here. Those are kind of their two gambits. So I think for me, that crystallized that it's kind of those two kinds of people that are fighting here yeah no i think you're absolutely right the 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 people who were managing the money were probably keen on remaining in the eu but the people whose money it was were probably keen to get out um 
and there is a big difference there. Uh, I mean, this I think I think we we all we'll, we'll see this as you say developing. There is a um, civil war in the you know in the Conservative Party at the moment. The only thing holding them together, it seems to me, is that they're even more terrified of a, of a Corbyn government than they are of each other. Um, but we, but I think it's it's worth again sort of reiterating the. The, as it were, the disparity between the treatment of a, as you say, an essentially a non-story or a, or a, a kind of anti-story um, about a, a casual, casual kind of acquaintance uh, between Corbyn and a Czech diplomat in the eighties, as against Seems so bizarre coming back to that now. <laughs> well, right, as against this incredibly dynamic, incredibly well-funded move by really quite a small fraction of Britain's ownership class and their their intellectual assistants and adjutants to drive to drive Britain's domestic policies in a direction that suits them um, and to do so with the with the aid and assistance of a foreign power um, and yet we never think of it in these terms this isn't it's never well, we do Dan so um, well, know, we, we do hopefully we can persuade others to we do um, but but certainly the the um, the dreaded mainstream media <laughs> are, are really kind of slow to grasp that that these people and they, these people have formed don't they I mean, Liam Fox um, was actually sacked from the government before for essentially running a freelance foreign policy Um and there is a there is a group of there is a there is a body of people um, that that identify it seems as being British who have no problem in um, pursuing their own foreign policy uh, in a way that that you know Corbyn has been damned you know from to hell and back for um, and we should ask ourselves whether um, we should we should pay a bit more attention to to that. Um, I mean, it's also about kind of what's going to solve these crises and the fact that we don't talk about uh, the US, you know, it really is just a massive amount of silence, like, that we're just expected to go, yeah, we're going to be fine because the US, what's really happening is that we're moving out of a, if we are going to move out fully, of an EU relationship to one that's just reliant on the US, it's not really that freedom that they've been talking about, Um, but what you know, um, Trump. Uh, sorry, not Trump. Not Corbyn. I must not get those two mixed up. Uh, his speech. <laughs> They're the his, same, essentially. His speech about the the war on terror. You know, when he was able to kind of really cut through, which is a big, big issue for the for the media, as we've seen, to get him on about like, oh, would you kill a person? Would you shoot to kill? Would you like? Would you attack this? Would you press the red button? You know, gammon faces everywhere. Um, People do understand underneath. He he kind of punctured something that was kind of in the air where he he said that you know we should maybe look at what our policies are doing. And I think people understand that getting into bed with the U.S. is also dangerous for our security because we want to step away from a kind of the war on terror stuff that we've had for so long. So um, talking about kind of security in that way as well is like I think embedded people understand you know that this is a dangerous situation. I mean. You know, haven't we spent some of the last few weeks talking about um, Trump messing around with the nuclear button and uh, North Korea? It's it's that, and that all just goes unsaid. 
Yeah, it's true, isn't it? There's a sort of there's a sort of double America. There's an America which is completely unexceptionable, uh, completely benign, uh, completely rational, and something that we is a sort of unquestioned element in our national life. And then there's the uh, the America that we keep seeing on the news and we keep hearing on Twitter from Trump, which is which seems to be completely um, unmoored at the moment um, and and extremely unpredictable and increasingly strange. Um, so, um, uh, I, you know, as, as we talk, I'm slowly convincing myself that I think they are going to stop Brexit and they're going to use these right wingers as their foil to doing it. That's my prediction. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, well, I guess we'll see how that plays out. Like <laughs> we can replay that clip then. That's uh, my bold box. prediction. And that's from that's from <laughs> someone who was by the way convinced that Jeb Bush would win the Republican <laughs> nomination. <laughs> well, we we can combine it with some of your greatest hits, can't we? Um, I the fact that my the fact that my predictions are always completely nonsense doesn't stop me from making them, which I think is I think is a um, it's a credit to my education. Um good. Right. Um Cam, thank you so much for joining us today. Um it was it was it was frankly tough to get excited about the Corbyn story because it is so ridiculous. But um, I think you have helped Tom and I um, to find something interesting in it. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, Cam. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to apologise, listeners, for Cam using the slur gammon because I know we have a lot of um, oh, bored okay. ham who listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> in, no, in no way do we want to be party to any uh, any uh, any slanders. So um, it's true. Much it's love true. to all our Gammony listeners. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks and, again, uh, guys. Shall we shall we wrap it up till next week then? That's brilliant. Cam, tell us tell uh, us where we. Can, sorry, Cam. Wh- wh- where can listeners um, find more of you? Um, you can find more of me and the Real Media team at realmedia.press. Uh, or at Real Media GB, or I am at Cambase, K-A-M-B-A-S-S. Wonderful. Okay, thanks very much. Goodbye to everyone.